Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Malpathanchel. Cutting people off from accurate news and information is a propagandist tool, and it's happening right now in places like Russia as the war in Ukraine continues. Media have reported on Russia's shutdown of local news outlets that are not government-run. Russians are threatened with jail time if they share news about the invasion. Even the words they use have been censored. And that censorship extends all the way to tech giants like Google and Meta to international media outlets with staff still in Russia. Today, where we live, we talk about censorship of the free press and social media. Coming up, we hear from Access Now, a global organization committed to the digital rights of Internet users. What questions do you have? You can join us to 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Before we talk about what's happening right now in Russia, we wanted to get context on censorship back in the former Soviet Union. Joining us now on Zoom is Ellen Lippmann. She's a novelist and associate English professor at UConn, and she grew up in the former Soviet Union. Ellen, welcome to our show. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Uh, as someone with roots in Russia, you've been also, of course, uh, following what's happening now uh, in Russia uh, since the war began in Ukraine. And we'll be talking about that in just a few minutes. But I wanted you first to share uh, what you remember about living in the former Soviet Union. I understand you left when you were 19 with your family. That's right. So um, I would say, um, you know, half of my time, probably more than half of my time, I spent there growing up until my teen years. Um, you know, this was the Soviet Union, as everyone thinks about it, where um, all the news that we got, everything we got was government produced, government, you know, approved, censored. And uh, um, in a sense, that's the only information we had. Um, and, uh, you know, People, some people did find ways um, to find out more. Um, it, even then, it wasn't legal, but uh, um, like my father and many other uh, people I know whose parents listen, you know, had shortwave radios and uh, they would uh, every morning uh, tune in to listen to BBC, to listen to Voice of America. Um, and um, again, you know, the government tried to sort of disrupt those signals or did sort of um, there were a lot of interference uh, in, um, in the sound quality. But this is something that people did if they wanted, those who wanted to uh, find out a little bit more, um, because um, a lot of people did suspect that we were getting, uh, you know, not quite the full picture. Mm. Um, but so again, you mentioned, how, yeah, how many? You mentioned that your dad was using a shortwave radio and others uh, to listen uh, to broadcasts. Uh, so tell us more about what you remember. And as you were getting older, you know, when things started to change a little bit in the Soviet Union, where maybe there was more access to information that had been censored in the past. 
Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, you know, as a kid, I just remember waking up to those sort of the signals that started those shows, um, the, the, the the little tunes, uh, the little uh, jingles that started each show. Um, and, you know, that my parents, when I was little, my parents wouldn't talk to me about it. But then um, around 1985, uh, uh, things started to change uh, with Perestroika, and um, I think the one of the first stages of Perestroika was Glasnost, uh, which is when uh, all this information started to become available. Um, you know, publications uh, uh, started to come out about what really happened in Russia's past. Um, you know, Stalin's repressions, and um, you know, and going back uh, to that, and even in you know further beginning of the you know, revolution in Russia, 1917. Um, so this was really fascinating. It's like we were watching uh, as history was being rewritten uh, and it wasn't just us sort of teen, teens. It was um, our teachers, our parents who were learning things for the first time. Um, books that were previously banned started being, started appearing and started being published and um, often in the, like sort of long, big magazine, thick magazine format, so like serialized and people would just, uh, you know, you can borrow the copy for a night and read it, read that novel that was banned before and then pass it to the next person you know, in the queue. Um, so in a way, it was really exciting getting that news. New programs started appearing on TV, um, more Western programs or Western, at least Western music. But um, but a lot of Russian made news programs that were now could present alternative views. Mm. You said it was an exciting time. This, of course, was before the Internet. And so was it hard for Russians to distinguish, you know, what was true, what was controlled by the government or as it, things started to loosen up a little? Uh, I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit about how they distinguish the information. Um, I mean, it was hard. There was no ways. There were no ways to, you know, verify who people were, who were producing the news, who what would do what they were doing um, in a way. Uh, it sort of it took years then to kind of when inter until internet came about and you could learn a little bit more about people who were behind it. You could start learning things that, that you still didn't know. I mean, um, I remember just uh, there is still even with the news, you, there was so little that we had access to in terms of what the government was doing, deciding what was actually happening. Um, you know, I remember uh, years later already in the U.S. Uh, reading about those 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 years, like say '85 to you know uh, early '90s, from uh, uh, the book by David Remnick, and uh, who was you know reporting uh, there at the time, and I, it was eye-opening because there was just no way. Russian people would have that access to that kind of information at the time. You're hearing Ellen Littman here on Where We Live. She's a novelist and a professor of English at UConn, and she grew up in the former Soviet Union. As we talk about the context of, of censorship back then and what Russians are experiencing today, if you have a question or a comment, you can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And so if we fast forward to today and um, how you have uh, stayed abreast of what's going on uh, in Russia, as we know, uh, with laws being passed, with censorship being very strong under Vladimir Putin, uh, with citizens being threatened with jail time, with how uh, they share information or talk about uh, even the war in Ukraine, even the war, word war being censored, yep. Ellen. So tell us about, you know, how you have kept abreast of this and how you've been sharing about this, what you've been able to, to read. 
Right. Well, I have discovered Telegram, uh, the app Telegram. Um, so basically, when the war started, I, I, you know, I ended up installing it to make sure I'm still connected to the family and friends I still have in, in, um, in Moscow, in Russia, because uh, from the start there were talks about the that the media, the internet is going to be limited, the access to uh, social media will be limited. Um, it took it took them a while, but that. It, it is happening. It has happened. So I never had a, a Telegram installed, but once I did, I sort of um, I, I realized that you can follow channels, and I realized that a lot of people, journalists, political scientists, economists that I was already following on Facebook, they were leaving Facebook for Telegram, um, and so I started sort of following them there, and from there, sort of following more um, people that they, uh, re, you know, sh whose posts they shared and recommended. And so I realized I'm sort of started living in that sort of uh, telegram kind of a bubble in a way. Um, some of the media that, uh, that's been shut down in Russia, some of the opposition um, alternative media that's been shut down, they all have channels. Um, they also have been... Um, creating channels and podcasts on YouTube. Um, so a radio station, uh, Echo of Moscow, for example, um, that's been sort of a go-to sort of radio station for um, anyone sort of supporting opposition and just wanted more alternative uh, kind of coverage of events. Um, it's been around for 30 years, so that was shut down. So they, what they did is they took another name, they started a channel on YouTube and they started uh, broadcasting um, some of the, not all, but some of the programs. So they're all very active uh, in that sort of kind of underground world in the sense. You mentioned Telegram. Uh, Reuters reporting that Telegram, this app, has been popular in Russia for a long time, more popular mm -hmm. than WhatsApp, and it has become the country's most used messaging tool in recent weeks due to the government restrictions on other digital services. And so give us an idea of, of what is being shared. Uh, you know, we, we uh, in reading, you know, Western uh, reports that uh, there is still strong support for Putin within Russia, but for the people that have been downloading and, and trying to circumvent the censorship, you know, what are they um, sharing about this moment and what's happening to their country as well as what's happening in Ukraine? Right. I mean, first of all, you know, people who download it, they can follow uh, news from the sources that were other that are otherwise they couldn't they can't access anymore. Um, whether it's uh, Western publications or you know Russian publications, so um, they can access the actual news, whether it's Ukrainian news, Belarus news sources from Belarus, um, whether it's BBC, etc., um, etc. So everyone is kind of there, but also, um, you know, the um, there are people share uh, sort of stories that they that they have encountered themselves. Um, there has been a lot about uh, stories of you know sort of propaganda that is being uh, directed at schools. Uh, people will share photos of uh, you know photo ops that the schools would have to do like uh, getting the little kids to stand in the formation of the letter Z, which became kind of a Putin symbol for this war. Um, uh, you know, obviously all of all those things that are sort of done, uh, they would share materials that are being sent to schools, that what, what teachers are supposed to say to the kids, uh, cases of uh, discrimination, cases of people being fired or arrested, all, you know, so, um, and then there are opinions of the experts, um, 
different takes on how, what what might happen, you know, from the so point of view of the economy, from the point of view of, um, you know, politically, um, sort of foreign policy. Um, so um, there is a lot. The question is how much people are actually following it, or who is following it and who is not. Right. Is there a sense of fear for those that are still in Russia because of of the way of the Kremlin and, and Putin operate, uh, people being jailed and protests being curtailed? And I'm wondering if you can talk about that for us. I mean, I think there is fear, definitely fear associated with uh, if you are choosing to speak up, um, you know, the increase in surveillance, um, things like that. Um, that's all possible. I mean, you know, uh, I have a, like one of my friends, you know, her son, um, who's in his 20s, participated in one protest and immediately started getting uh, visits from the police. The police just comes to your home and to have a, at first a talk with you or to warn you, um, things like that. So it's all uh, very uh, scary and very threatening because Russia, everyone remembers the history. Everyone at this point knows what happened in the 30s and to some degree in the 50s. Um, everyone remembers the culture where uh, neighbors reported neighbors. And uh, so it is scary. This must be hard for you uh, to be so connected uh, to Russia because of your family's roots. You said you still have friends there. Uh, as you were writing uh, for these uh, this, uh, these articles, uh, I guess been published on Medium and also shared on Facebook, uh, You know, tell me about some of the the things that you focused on and has it been difficult to to try to disconnect is this something that you feel so passionate about that you are um you know on this you know 24 7. yeah i mean i think it's just really heartbreaking first of all the the, the horror of what is happening in ukraine um you know you read about it you see uh you see it in the photos uh and um you know you uh, you you coming from a country that was so anti-war that was our whole identity during the soviet union so the so soviet union was so uh lost so much and was so traumatized by the world war ii it was just a huge part of our culture talking about the war it can never it can never happen again the remembrance of the world war ii um films songs, everything, every, you know, about it. And to see uh, these images of um, that are basically reminiscent of what we've been shown, what fascists did during the World War II to, you know, Russian or Ukrainian, you know, um, you know, Soviet cities. And now to see Russia doing it to Ukrainian cities, it's just so illogical. And I think a lot of people actually in Russia, um, all the people, have a different difficult time reconciling it kind of internally no they like they in denial that's like no it cannot be happening this cannot be true um so on that level it's really hard but also i just i mean there was i kind of personally sort of there's this heartbreak of um going from that sort of hope of democracy that i saw as um you know i was coming of age you know, going through high school and college, beginning of college. And even though the times were difficult, but there was that freedom and there was that hope. And to see uh, the country, what it's become of it now, and uh, even, even and it, it's been on that, on the way to this kind of, rep to back, backwards for a while now, but uh, the, you, the war is just through uh, the whole country back into 
Soviet, the Soviet, the Soviet life. Mm. So, so you and your family left after the fall of the Soviet Union, Ellen? Yeah, shortly after the fall of the, we left in the fall of '92, and uh, you know, at the time, I was. Uh, it took me a while. It was my parents' decision. They were doing it for me and my sister, and it was hard to come to terms with it because everyone I knew, all my friends, were there, and it was hard. Uh, in retrospect, of course, I'm incredibly grateful that they that we left, um, and a lot of people are leaving now, Russia, for different reasons, obviously. Um, so, yeah. What has been the What has been the feedback that you've received with your Telegram chronicles, Ellen? Um, I think people are interested. People uh, feel like they're getting, you know, information that they wouldn't otherwise. That is sort of more coming from like, well, what is happening in Russia? How Russian people? Because I'm the, you know, I'm sort of for the most part, I'm talking about the. Um, the things that um, you know, Russian experts are saying, Russian economists or Russian politicians and or political scientists. I'm sorry, uh, uh, pandits. What they're saying. Um, so it's kind of a different perspective, and people are interested and appreciate it. And uh, those of my Russian friends who are, you know, following it, they have a VPN. They're able to see my posts. Sort of, they like, well, yeah, that's you know, they're happy that I'm voicing things that otherwise wouldn't make it. Um, I mean, I, I, I started by just kind of doing like the chronicles of each day because I was so overwhelmed by everything that was going constantly happening. And now I'm trying to kind of answer sort of more kind of questions um, that are for myself, right? Why are people supporting this? Why there's such a high percentage of Russian people supporting um, Putin and his war? Or is it people's collaboration? In one of the, the articles that you wrote, when you talk about, you know, why are people supporting Putin in this war? When we think about uh, the crackdown on the independent free press, but also the, still the existence of government-controlled news channels like Channel One, which I believe you wrote right. about. Can you tell us about that? I think what I'm learning, and I'm, it's like every every day I'm kind of I'm so immersed in this and listening to these programs and listening and reading uh, um what I'm not, what I've been underestimating, I think, is the, A, the presence, um, I've been saying like, well, they have, people can, the VPN can access the same channels, they just don't want to. But what I don't have is this presence of Channel One, essentially, or of that mainstream government propaganda. And I've been hearing sort of just how powerful it is, how sort of well executed it is. I mean, I was listening to this one political scientist yesterday who said, I accidentally switched on that channel. And I was just blown away. It's just you feel like you're going crazy. Um, so there is that. Um, I'm also, I think that, you know, it's a, the in a time of war, there is that whole rallying around the leader, rallying around the flag that's happening. Um, I also, from what I, another reason that you know, for the support that I'm hearing about is that just even psychologically adjusting to, um, you know, you hear about that horror, horrors that's happening in your name that's being committed in your name and uh, how do you live with it? So uh, you can't, so you start looking for justifications just because it's so hard to constantly live with that reality in your face. So people start rationalizing psychologically uh, to themselves um, why this is or what it making making it possible for themselves to live with it somehow um it's also been said that the war still for most russian people feels like it's happening elsewhere in moscow say 
um, you know, for people there, um, it for them it's still distant, and economically it hasn't really affected uh, people seriously just yet. Um, so uh, that so people feel like, oh, okay, we were afraid that it will be horrible and everything will change instantly. But yes, things are not. Things seem okay. We see we so we're so we're adjusting. We're okay. So I think that's another reason. And finally, um, that isolation. Um, yes, people have access to VPN, other sources through VPN, but they are isolated from uh, the public opinion in the West and in the um, you know America, Europe. Um, they are not seeing that um, the outcry. You know the shock um, that. Uh, the Western community is experiencing um, watching these events. Um, so not having that in their face also makes it um, sort of less urgent in some ways, maybe, for people. So those are some of the things that I've been able to kind of understand because it has been a huge, I mean, it's, it's shocking to mm -hmm. see the numbers of how high the support is either for the war or for Putin himself, the ratings are going up for him. So that's, that that's interesting context that you provide that for Russians there now, they're not feeling the impacts of uh, these uh, sanctions and other measures that we're hearing from Western leaders uh, that are being handed down severely. And so that's why public opinion um, may not have changed uh, to such a degree as we're seeing uh, from outside uh, Russia, yeah. Ellen. It's, uh, from what I hear from what sort of various political scientists predicted, will probably take another two to three months be before it will really hit people. I mean, there are such certain shortages of, shortages of this or that that are starting, but uh, a lot of the things that become, become have become less available, they weren't um, available to those with money, but not to those who had less money, uh, who were living more modestly. So, uh, you know, for those people, things haven't changed at all. Uh, but it's just, you know, I mean, uh, Putin is on borrowed time at this point economically. And so he just has another two, three months while he's, you know, he can live in this country, he can rule this country where people don't feel the repercussions economically mm -hmm. yet. You've been hearing Ellen Lippman again. She's a novelist, an associate professor of English at UConn, and she's been uh, writing about uh, the information that's being uh, given out in Russia, as well as how Russian citizens are working around uh, censorship to share uh, and to learn about um, what's going on, especially with the, the war in Ukraine. Uh, those uh, articles that she's written uh, called the Telegram uh, Chronicles, and we'll share a link with our listeners um, on our Twitter at where we live, uh, Ellen and her family, they were in the Soviet Union until about uh, the 1990, mid 1990s or so. Ellen, thank you for sharing your perspective. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. Coming up, we're going to talk more about the censorship happening in Russia and how Russians are circumventing these measures. Ellen mentioned a few times VPNs or virtual private networks, uh, ways to um, use uh, messaging apps that are encrypted um, as uh, the, the shutdown on local press and uh, social media continues by the Kremlin. We're going to hear from two organizations, including Access Now, a global organization 
committed to the digital rights of Internet users and Ranking Digital Rights, an organization that evaluates Internet, mobile, and telecommunications based on human rights standards. Now, what questions do you have? You can join us, too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Since the war in Ukraine began, Russia has shut down free press and social media apps like Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Reuters reports that Instagram has said its ban will affect 80 million users in Russia. So we wanted to know how is it possible for Russians to share and receive accurate information about what's happening. Before we get to that, we wanted some more context on the history of censorship in Russia. Joining us now on Zoom, Natalie Marichal, Senior Policy Manager at Rank Digital Rights. This is an organization that works to evaluate internet, mobile, and telecommunications based on human rights standards. Natalie, welcome to our show. Hi, thanks for having me. And listeners can join as well with a question at 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So Ellen gave us some interesting perspective, what it was like growing up in the former Soviet Union. But when we think about media control and um, what's happening currently, can you give us more context as we think about um, in the relationship of Vladimir Putin's rise to power? Absolutely. That's a really, really important question. Something that I think is really hard for uh, American and uh, Western audiences more, more broadly to uh, to really get in, in our guts is that um, in, in Russia and in the, the other countries of the former Soviet Union, uh, there isn't the same tradition of uh, the free press or the free media as uh, a central part of the system of governance uh, for for society as a whole that we have here, right? Like we we have a tradition going back to um, to the in, in the U.S. going back to um, the U.S. Revolution and and even before that. Um, the press is a fourth estate and that it has a really important role to play in uh, bringing uh, truth to light and in holding um, the other branches of government accountable and informing the public and so on, which isn't to say that free expression and free press has has always been respected in the U.S., but there is this, this deeply held cultural value there. Um, that's not the case in Russia. Going back to uh, to the, the days of the Tsars, uh, well, well before uh, the the Soviet the Soviet Union, 
the I, the understanding was that information was uh, first and foremost a tool for power and that it was something that needed to be controlled and that needed to be feared. Uh, and of course, under um, under the Soviet Union, uh, that you know, the, the leadership really doubled down on that, right? And, and Ellen spoke to that uh, very, very eloquently just now. And that's that's something that, um, despite the, the brief opening in uh, in the 90s and very early 2000s, uh, that, you know, that's known as, as, as glasnost, uh, this idea that information is dangerous and needs to be controlled is something that is is a deeply, deeply held belief, but for for Vladimir Putin and uh, and other elites in his regime. Also with us on Zoom is Natalia Krapiva. She's tech legal counsel for Access Now. This is an organization that defends digital rights of Internet users around the world. Natalia, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. Uh, I wanted to hear from you uh, through Access Now as a perspective when we think about the government control of free press and social media happening right now in Russia. You know, who are the people that are, are still working to provide uh, accurate information and what's happening to them on the ground in Russia? Sure. So there's a lot of, uh, well, there's a number of independent media that still continue working in Russia despite all the censorship um, the, the censorship happened uh, years before the, the, the current invasion of Ukraine happened and it was been gradually increasing. And with the, with the start of the invasion, um, there was a more uh, of a sort of across the board blocking of a lot of independent media um, organizations online and also restricting of what they can say and how they can say it. But there's still a number of uh, media such as uh, Doxa, Media Zona, Medusa, who are continuing um, resisting and still covering um, the inv- the invasion in Ukraine and um, you know talking about the protests and everything that's happening. But their websites have been blocked. Then uh, social media, uh, where they also have presence, uh, such as Instagram, Facebook, uh, is being blocked. Um, but they're still continuing. Telegram is still working. Um, and then, of course, as was mentioned earlier, uh, VPN and Tor and, and other sort of circumvention tools that people, especially younger people, um, are using to still connect to these uh, platforms to continue receiving the news about what's going on. You mentioned the young people. You referenced DOXA. I believe this is independent student media. Uh, you tweeted the other day that there are young people that are affiliated with DOXA that are now facing up to three years in jail for talking about what's happening. Can yes, you give exactly. us a little context? Yes, and this is why it's so the, the charges stem from earlier uh, events. Uh, they, they go back to the protests associated with Alexei Navalny, who is a mm-hmm. uh, anti-corruption activist and opposition leader after he was um, poisoned and imprisoned uh, by the government. Uh, there were protests associated with, with that. People were calling on releasing him, but there was also a lot of pressure on young people, on um, university uh, students, not to go to protests. Um, there was a lot of uh, yeah, fear of yeah, being basically kicked out of uh, university. Their careers would be impacted. And so DOXA as being an uh, independent um, student-led uh, you know, student media, they recorded a video uh, basically in support of, of students uh, calling on them to be brave and uh, not be afraid 
and that resulted in the current um, criminal charges against them. They've been under house arrest. But despite that, they have been actually one of the leading um, independent media covering uh, the, new, the news about the, the invasion of Ukraine, the current invasion. So it's been really brave of them. And, and as I said, I do believe that people like that, young people like that are the future of Russia. There's still a lot of, I think there's a, a lot of generational difference, sort of older people are that have memories both of the Soviet Union and then the 90s where uh, there was a, a lot of freedom, but at the same time, there was a lot of chaos and instability. So there's sort of this fear of the 90s. And I think a lot of younger people, they are, I don't have that kind of traumatic memory, uh, but they are very much sort of interconnected with the West and exposed to ideas uh, about internet freedom. And they, they have enjoyed a free internet for some time. And so um, there is a lot more sort of um, thinking and protest mm -hmm. activities, I think, and independent thinking that's coming from younger people. Mm -hmm. uh, Natalie Marichelle is also here with us, who's a senior policy manager at Ranking Digital Rights. Uh, Natalie, you were telling us about uh, some of, of the history under the former Soviet Union uh, when um, when the fall happened, uh, there was this uh, uh, loosening uh, and uh, more uh, access uh, to news and information. But with the rise of Putin, there has been um, the crackdown again. And, and so when we think about, um, you know, his influence and when this started, it was long before uh, the war in Ukraine. Uh, can you tell us about that and, you know, his in his reaction uh, to the internet and how it can breed uh, more of this, um, you know, feelings against him and, and what he is uh, trying to do as leader. For sure. Uh, so, so one thing that happened uh, very soon after uh, Vladimir Putin first came into power at the, at the end of, of 1999 is that he started to systematically um, bring uh, free and independent uh, media back under the control uh, of, of his regime. And so he, of course, uh, framed it as being about liberating uh, uh Th these media organizations from uh, the control of the of the oligarchs from the from the private sector who had acquired um, all kinds of formerly state owned um, entities and so gradually bringing uh, all of these organizations uh, under the direct state authority and over time also um, um, less directly controlling uh, controlling them. Um, by by putting people who who owed him favors and that he had influence over in charge of the media, and uh, and then in in 2011 is when uh, he really started to uh, to, to crack down um, on the internet uh, and and on social media platforms in particular. This was uh, if you remember, this was the time when um, the Arab Spring uh, was breaking out. Uh, all kinds of countries around the world were having so called color revolutions, and there was a, a, a lot of um, somewhat overstated um, excitement in, in, in the press around the world about how uh, all these social media revolutions, these Facebook revolutions and Twitter revolutions and so on, uh, were pushing back against dictators. Um, that year in Russia, there were uh, widespread protests um, against uh, the Vladimir Putin and, uh, and the fact that the legislative elections that year were, were widely seen, including by international election observers, as as having been uh, as having been rigged in favor of, of Putin's party, and um, he still managed to win the elections uh, because rigging elections works, right? Um, or it can work at any rate. 
And uh, and he became convinced that uh, the Internet as a whole and social media in particular was uh, was a U.S. ploy uh, to undermine him and, and his regime and, uh, and and started to crack down uh, really seriously on um, on both uh, international uh, Internet companies and also domestic ones in, in Russia. And, you know, it's, it's interesting how how everything kind of uh, com- comes back around because. We were talking about uh, Telegram earlier um, on, on this show, and uh, the, the founder of Telegram, Pavel Durov, uh, had f- before that founded uh, Vkontakte, or, or VK, which is one of the major social media platforms in, in Russia. And uh, he he was uh, forced out uh, of his own company because, uh, again, in, in 2011, 2012, he had refused to, um, to turn over information about people who were planning protests on the platform or uh, censoring groups where people were or were doing political organizing. And so he wound up, uh, along with his brother and another colleague, leaving Russia and founding Telegram, uh, which, of course, now is uh, is is one of the, the, the places where um, Russian civil society is is able to organize. You're hearing Natalie Marshall here on Where We Live as we talk about Russian censorship. She's senior policy manager at Ranking Digital Rights. That's an organization working to evaluate Internet, mobile and telecommunications based on human rights standards. Also with us on Zoom, Natalia Krapiva, tech legal counsel for Access Now, an organization that defends digital rights of Internet users around the world. So, Natalia, tell us more about um, this circumvention. We we have referenced VPNs earlier. We know that uh, many Russians are all using uh, Telegram. And when we think about, um, you know, the the fact that, you know, media outlets like Reuters reporting that, you know, the week of February 28th, you saw Russian users downloading VPN apps, I think 2.7 million times. That's a threefold increase. Uh, also, using these encrypted messaging apps like Telegram uh, that can access blocked websites now that the Kremlin has shut down uh, Facebook and Instagram and, and Twitter, I believe. But when we think about, you know, the, the digital, digital rights of these users and these workarounds, is it still a small percentage of the Russian people? It's hard to say how many people exactly are using these tools, but we have seen, as you mentioned, there's been reporting on um, increase in the use of some of these tools, uh, such as Proton, VPN, Lantern, um, other other uh, VPN services, and Tor, um, by thousands of percent. Uh, so something that they haven't seen before, they some of them were relatively sort of obscure tools, and now... Um, again, uh, individuals in Russia are really increasingly using them. Um, it's hard to tell, how, again, how many, and it seems to be mostly, again, those who are younger uh, and sort of who have a little bit uh, more sort of tech um, skills and understanding of how technology works. Uh, it's less true for older people, the people who are sort of more in uh, away from big cities. Um, we have seen some polling done, I think, by Radio Free um Europe that said that people who are getting um, new, like people who are reading news are like, it's a very small percentage that actually is using uh, VPNs to read the news. But again, overall, this is increasing. And I think as censorship is going to increase, there will be also 
uh, increase in, in this use of these types of um, circumvention tools. And I say that sort of as a cat and mouse game, especially with um, the civil society, you know, and human rights organizations, independent media, uh, they have been using increasingly under this pressure of censorship and surveillance. And so um, I am. I, I, I want to remain confident that um, they will continue evading censorship um, and using these tools. Um, but at the same time, of course, in terms of how accessible these tools are, it's, it's another question, I think, for, for the regular people, for the reasons that I mentioned. And another reason is that, of course, due to increasing sanctions, um, you know, it's it's becoming difficult. For example, payment methods don't uh, work uh, because of you know sanctions on banks and, and payment systems, um, and so this is something that users report that it's becoming also um, difficult to download and um, and uh, uh, pay for the services. But we are seeing also positive development where um, I think Lantern and others are, for example, um, now uh, providing these tools for free. Um, and so this is something that we want to see more and more happening where we are companies and um, and hopefully also there's more funding for for this kind of tools and the companies that provide them for free uh, or make them more accessible and user friendly also for for those maybe users in Russia who are not so technologically savvy. And when you mentioned technologically, not technologically savvy, those who may not even know how, how a VPN works, we'll get into that right after a short break. You're hearing Natalia Krapiva here from Access Now and Natalie Marichelle from Ranking Digital Rights as we talk about Russian censorship. More after a short break. listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. We're talking about censorship in Russia and how crackdowns on free press and social media impacts the amount of information Russians receive, especially with this continued war in Ukraine. My guest, Natalia Krapiva, Tech Legal Counsel for Access Now, an organization that defends the digital rights of Internet users around the world, and Natalie Marichelle, a Senior Policy Manager at Ranking Digital Rights, an organization that evaluates Internet, mobile, and telecommunications based on human rights standards. Uh, Natalie, we heard Natalia mention VPN a few times. Again, this is a virtual private network. So if someone were in Russia and they tried to access uh, Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, and these again are blocked uh, by Moscow um, with a VPN, just briefly describe for us again how this works so they're able to access that information. Yeah, I think the easiest way to, to think of a, of a VPN is to uh, think of it as uh, a magic portal that transports you from where you physically are in the world. So in this in this case, in Moscow, perhaps, uh, and transports you magically to uh, somewhere else like Berlin. Uh, and so you're able to access the Internet as if you were uh, in that new location. And Natalia, when we think about uh, the role of Putin in the censorship, in in some senses, the unintended consequence uh, in boosting digital literacy in Russia, especially among the younger generation. Can you talk about that? Yes, sure. I think you can say that um, that it's definitely, as I mentioned, uh, based on the statistics that we see from this. Uh, 
that provide these tools that there's um, the usage has increased uh, by a lot. And so it seems to be even some people uh, in Russia that uh, some of the, the friends that I know, for example, before that they never used or other tools all of a sudden are switching to them to stay on Instagram and other platforms because some of you know some are bloggers or vloggers um, or they want to stay in touch with their friends you know it's not even just political people who are when I get the news it's just uh, regular users who have been relying on these platforms again to communicate with friends and family some of them like vloggers they, they for example yeah depend um, they have some income that they're getting from their um, their presence uh, online and so we've seen those people that before I think didn't care as much about uh, and um, they are now using this tool. So this is something that uh, probably is like an unintended consequence of this. And I think, honestly, this is why probably uh, we haven't seen a full uh, blocking of platforms before. There was sort of selective throttling. We saw uh, Twitter being throttled um, uh, in 2021, partially. We saw other sort of selected or temporary blockings. But in terms of like full-scale blockings, this is something the government hasn't been doing, I think, understanding that it will, it might have those consequences and that even those people who are sort of away from politics, um, that, that might get them to, to use, you know, circumvention tools, but also become more sort of active, uh, because politically, because again, like the, the, what, what is happening might affect them directly. And so this is something that, uh, we might see now it's hard to it's hard to tell I think we we were you were discussing earlier that it might be still early to know what's going to happen in terms of more people protesting or feeling the effect of sanctions and um, you know these blockings but I think we will we will definitely see in the next few months as to whether actually the the, the protest activity and the people who will be um, you know, more affected by what's happening, what Russia is doing. Um, that yeah, we might we might see more of them sort of expressing their um, their opinions about that. Uh, Natalie, before we run out of time, I did want to ask, you know, how uh, you know, tech giants are navigating this. Uh, looking at a headline, you know, about 10 days ago, a Moscow court found Meta guilty of extremist activity based on what was being shared on Facebook and Instagram. Of course, uh, uh, there's Google and we, have, we know there's international media that still have staff in Russia. And so how they navigate the censorship while still trying to get information out there. Gosh, we could easily spend a couple hours talking <laughs> about this. Um, in short, I'd say it's it's really, really complicated, and uh, companies are constrained by uh, first their uh, their ability or their their need and their uh, obligation to protect their staff on the ground and not put them in in additional danger. Uh, trying to uh, have coherent uh, policies that they can stand by in the future and in, in other parts of the world. Uh, they're not doing a great job of that. And uh, also actually having policies that they can enforce. Uh, and that's something that they're really struggling with as well. So it's it's really complicated and it's, it's going to continue to be really complicated for a long time, but we're watching closely. And Natalia, did you want to add to that? Um, no, I, I would just add to that that actually the the localization laws or the lending laws are also important uh, aspect. The companies begin complying just before this recent, um, you know, uh, 
before the invasion, before this recent sort of extremism and other other um, actions by the government. And so that will um, that will be also another complex um, uh, part of it is that uh, companies now have presence, uh, offices and staff on the ground, and we, which we have seen in September of last year where Apple and Google were pressured uh, through their staff in Russia to remove uh, Alexei Navalny's uh, team's um, smart voting uh, uh, project app. And so, so this is something that I'm afraid we will see more of in terms of uh, government using intimidation of the staff on the ground of these tech giants. And Natalia, before we run out of time, we've got about a minute, but you know, I should ask you when we think about how Russia is actively working, of course, to disrupt uh, the information being shared in Ukraine, what can you tell us? Sure. We were hearing from partners on the ground that uh, as Russia, uh, well, first of all, in, in general, yeah, there seems to be attack on infrastructure, uh, internet, mobile services, uh, electricity. Obviously, we all heard of Mariupol, where um, people are cut off from the outside world, but also in the territories that Russia occupies, uh, of course, the Crimea and the East Ukraine, but also the new territories they take. What we're hearing from partners is that they take over, they replace the infrastructure uh, and then start streaming government, Russian government propaganda immediately um, and then using it as a part of their military strategy that they have this digital part as well that they are using against the Ukrainian population. You've been hearing Natalia Krapiva here on Where We Live, Tech Legal Council with Access Now. That's an organization that defends the digital rights of Internet users around the world. Natalia, thank you for your perspective today. Thank you for having me. Also here with us, Natalie Marichal, Senior Policy Manager at Ranking Digital Rights, an organization that evaluates Internet, mobile, and telecommunications based on human rights standards. Natalie, thanks for your context as well. My pleasure. You've been listening to Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical director is Kat Pastor. You can download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. We hope you have a great weekend. We're back on Monday.